the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us again. Follow us at danproftshow.com, the podcast the program there, on social media at Dan Proft Show. And uh, we begin tonight with a breakdown of uh, Tucker Carlson's uh, wide-ranging interview with Tony Bobolinsky, former business partner of not just Hunter Biden. I think that's not a fair characterization. It's not comprehensive enough. Former business partner of Biden, Inc., former business partner of, as he described, Hunter Biden, Jim Biden, Joe Biden's brother, as well as the big guy himself. And this is the uh, one of the key takeaways from what otherwise involves, you know, some complications here because you have so many parties, so many moving parts. And as we found out from Tony Bobolinsky, uh, so many uh, deals happening around the globe uh, trading off of the Biden family name, which was sort of the point of their enterprises and their professional relationships. I found Bobolinsky to be credible, but not without conflict. And I'll get to that. And I think Hunter should have pushed him on a couple of matters just to establish uh, his bona fides that much more substantially. Uh, Look, he uh, provided specifics which can be easily verified, many of which can be verified through public record. And those specifics demand specific questions be put to Joe Biden. This is about Joe Biden. This is about Hunter Biden's uh, personal peccadilloes. This is about Joe Biden leveraging his office, not for just Uh, familial enrichment, but potentially for personal enrichment. It also raises the specter of Joe Biden being compromised by one or more of America's primary enemies, foreign enemies. And I remember a time, I'm old enough to remember, a time when the Democrats and their press corps were very concerned about a POTUS who could be compromised by a foreign enemy of America. I guess that's no longer the case. So we begin with uh, how Bobolinsky got involved. He wasn't uh, there at the outset of all of the Biden Inc. dealings brought in specifically by a, a mutual colleague, a Brit named Galar, to be the CEO of this deal that Biden Inc. was orchestrating to develop a consortium with the Chinese energy company, CEFC, uh, in, Tied to the Chinese Communist Party, of course, uh, to do energy deals, including a, a multi-billion-dollar uh, uh, natural gas, liquid natural gas facility, as we'll get to. So, uh, Bobolinsky first explaining, you know, how he's brought into the family, as it were. He sent you the following text, which explained the deal with China that he wanted you to become part of, and I just want to read the first 
sentence of this. There will be a deal between one of the most prominent families from the U.S. and them constructed by me. Yes, that's correct. Tell me what he was saying. So James Gillier was referencing something that he had been working on throughout 2015 with Rob Walker in a Chinese company called CEFC, and he had uh, been traveling around the world developing that deal, and that text was just the culmination of him making me aware that the deal was moving forward. So he, he doesn't say, I want to do a deal with you and me and Hunter Biden, or even you, me, Hunter Biden, and Jim Biden. He said, between one of the most prominent families from the United States. He's talking about the Biden family. Yes, that's correct. It was never about Hunter Biden or Jim Biden. It was about the family name, the Biden legacy. This is such a key point because this goes to this idea of Joe Biden's denial of any knowledge of his son's dealings. Where Joe Biden can say, you know, I don't know anything specific about my son's dealings because there's no such thing as his son's dealings. As you'll hear there's just the Biden family dealings. So you can't separate out the Hunter Biden dealings because there is no Hunter Biden dealings. There's just the family dealing as a business, sort of how crime families operate. I mean, it's something um, that smacks of the Godfather, except it's real. Uh, here is uh, Bobolinsky talking about being uh, summoned out to L.A. to meet with Team Biden and ultimately the big guy. This on the occasion of Joe Biden flying out to speak at the Milliken conference in L.A. OK, uh, across those days in uh, Los Angeles in May of 2017 that you're referencing, I met uh, with Hunter Biden uh, multiple times at the Chateau Marmont and um, and Rob Walker. And uh, the discussion was they wanted me to sit down with their father just to meet him and uh, at a high level discuss the Biden family and how they approach things. And Rob Walker is important just to make a mental notation. Rob Walker, longtime confidant, a representative of the Biden family. You'll understand why in a moment when you hear the exchange uh, on telephone between Walker and Bubalinski about uh, Bubalinski going public. Uh, then going back to Bubalinski, his meeting after the meeting with Team Biden in L.A., the meeting with the big guy, Joe. As you can imagine, I've been asked uh, by 100 people over the last month, you know, why would you be meeting with Joe Biden? And I sort of turned the question around to the people that asked me, why at 1038 on the night of May 2nd would Joe Biden take time out of his schedule to sit down with me in a dark bar at the Beverly Hilton, sort of positioned behind a column so people couldn't see us, to have a discussion about his family and my family and uh, business at a very high level uh, where Jim Biden sat and Hunter Biden participated in. Right. Uh, it's interesting to turn it around the other way. Why would you be meeting with Joe Biden? Why would Joe Biden be meeting with me? Why would he make the time? Who am I? I'm just uh, somebody who's dealing with, uh, who's in a business deal with his son, who Joe Biden has nothing to do, uh, dealings that, with which Joe Biden says he has nothing to do, right? Does that hold up to scrutiny? Uh, and then... Um, the meeting with the Joe Biden, there's how Bublinski characterized it. 
Joe came through the lobby with his security and Hunter um, basically said, hey, give me a second. I'll go over and give me 10 minutes to brief my dad uh, and read him in on things. And so then Hunter and his father and security came through the bar. And uh, obviously I stood up out of respect to shake his hand. And uh, Hunter introduced me as uh, this is Tony, dad, uh, the individual I told you about that's helping us with the business that we're working on and the Chinese. So it was clear to you that Joe Biden's son had told him about this business. Crystal clear. Crystal clear. So Joe Biden knew what the deal was. And uh, this leads into the 10 percent for the big guy. The email sent to Bubalinski that lays out the uh, requested equity stakes from the various players in this deal. And Bubalinski explains. And uh, importantly, listen to the very end, explains the question that the press should be asking of Joe Biden based on that distribution, based on that reference to 10 percent for the big guy and then what the equity stake turned out to be for this particular deal. On May 13th, that email was sent from James Gilliard to me. I didn't generate that email. James Gilliard generated that email. And in that email, James Gilliard goes through intimate detail of what each individual's requests were from a compensation perspective and how the equity in the enterprise would be divvied up. Very important, May 13th, that email was generated by somebody else to me. In that email, there's a statement where they go through the equity, Jim Biden's referenced as you know 10%, doesn't say Biden, it says Jim, and then it has 10% for the big guy held by H. I 1,000% sit here and know that the big guy is referencing Joe Biden. Um, it's, that's crystal clear to me because I lived it. I met with the former vice president in person multiple times, and I had been meeting and talking with Hunter Biden and, and uh, Jim Biden and Rob Walker and James Gillier. Where the media has tried to hide, and I personally feel it's disgusting, is between that May 13th email and the final document that was executed called Oneida Holdings, LLC. In Oneida Holdings LLC, the equity is broken up 20% Hunter Biden, 20% Jim Biden. Well, they're LLCs that represented them. Right. 20% James Gillier, 20% Rob Walker, and 20% me and my investment entity. What I'd ask the American people to read and look at is how from May 13th to the final Oneida document that got executed, did Jim Biden go from a 10% owner to a 20% owner. Right. It's such a great question. It's very simple, very commonsensical. Uh, the request that Jim made was for 10 and for 10 for the big guy. The final paperwork is 20 for Jim Biden. Why would the other stakeholders, the other uh, individuals that have an equity position, give up 10% more equity to Jim Biden unless it was him serving as a pass through for somebody else who they had already committed an equity stake to? When we come back, I uh, want to pick this up and something that Bublinski asked himself and then put it to Jim Biden. You know, aren't you worried about the optics of this the Biden family, uh, particularly if uh, Joe Biden were to uh, you know, run for the president sometime in the future? And uh, what Jim Biden answered more right after that. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome back to the show. We're going through the uh, Tucker Carlson interview with Tony Bobolinsky and folding in uh, other relevant information. And again, the detail that Bobolinsky provided backed up with text messages as well as other documents, the evidentiary support really lends to the credibility of what Bobolinsky is saying. Or if this is all an elaborate ruse, then why doesn't Joe Biden just say so, that the entire offering from Bobolinsky, everything that he said uh, just comes from his imagination. None of it has any basis, in fact, rather than just saying it's some kind of smear campaign. It's this and that. It's Rudy Giuliani, C. Bannon. Forget all that. What Tony Bobolinsky is saying, the messages that have been released, are those authentic or not? Did you meet with them or not? Did these discussions happen or not? Were you aware of these deals or not? The specific deals, the China Energy deal, where Bobolinsky was going to be the CEO of this newly formed company. And uh, as I said before the break, Bobolinsky, you know, rightly, I mean, this is not an unsophisticated guy, former naval officer. He had done international deals before. He clearly knew who he was dealing with. And uh, and he had to understand. And this is where I think his conflict should have been challenged. Tucker Carlson should have said, well, look, you, you know, you're not a babe in the woods. You're doing this deal with the Biden family, knowing that this deal is only happening because of the Biden family. So they're influence peddling. They're influencing peddling with Chinese communists. And as we found out, Chinese communists doing business with Russian communists, <laughs> effectively, uh, an energy deal. So, you know, I mean, there's no holier than thou. This isn't all about patriotism because you were willing to do business with an American political family trafficking and influence with communists who are enemies of the state, enemies of our state, enemies of America. I would have been interested to hear Bobolinsky's answer to that. But nonetheless, what he's saying still needs to be addressed including uh, this exchange that he reportedly had with Jim Biden, the big guy's brother. How are they doing this? I know Joe decided not to run in 2016, but what if he ran in the future? Aren't they taking political risk or headline risk? And I remember looking at Jim Biden and saying, how are you guys getting away with this? Like, aren't you concerned? And he sort of he looked at me and he laughed a little bit and said, uh, plausible deniability. He said that out loud? Uh, yes, he said it directly to me, one-on-one in a cabana at the Peninsula Hotel after about a, you know hour and a half, two-hour meeting, with me asking out of concern, how are you guys doing this? Aren't you concerned that you're going to put your brother's you know, future presidential campaign at risk? Um, you know, the Chinese, the stuff that you guys have been doing already in 2015 and 2016 around the world. And uh, I just can almost picture his face where he sort of chuckles and says, you know, plausible deniability. Yeah, it's not very plausible. I mean, it's uh, synonymous with basically lying. I'm lying and uh, I know it. Uh, This is how I'm going to get away with it. What uh, he probably uh, didn't include explicitly, but should have plausible deniability. And who's going to challenge us? The press, the D.C. press corps? Clearly not, as we are seeing. So uh, if the relationship was all hunky dory and uh, Tony Bobolinsky went in with eyes wide open, then why would he come public now? Why would he uh, raise these issues, provide these details now? He explained. I'm only sitting here because they have not, not only have they not gone on record, they've denied it and they've tarred my family name and a long history of serving this country and have other congressmen now talking about Russian disinformation. And that uh, congressman that he's referencing is, of course, Adam Schiff, who was perhaps the most pathological of the pathological liars in Congress. And Bobolinsky essentially said, as you'll hear, spoke with Rob Walker, again, the Biden family rep, one of the partners in these deals, and told him either uh, Schiff 
retracts the statements he made suggesting Russian disinformation and me as part of a Russian disinformation campaign by extension, or uh, I go public and tell the world what I know to be true. But for the Biden family to deny these facts and then not only deny them, they could have just said no comment, but they didn't say no comment. They then brought in Russian disinformation and basically associated my name with that, which is absolutely disgusting to me. And I had to go on the record. Last weekend, I was in Virginia. Uh, Sally, my sister-in-law, passed away at around, I think, 6.38 Saturday morning. That's the wife of my brother who spent 28 years serving this country as a naval flight officer and just retired. So you can imagine me dealing with that and the tragedy of that. When I saw Adam Schiff go on record talking about Russian disinformation after this email had been posted online by the New York Post, and remember that email was to me from James Gillier, right? It wasn't, you know, I wasn't blind carboned or CC'd on that. It was to me stating that I was going to be the CEO of this enterprise. Um, I had, uh, I was at the end of my rope. And so I called Rob Walker and I told him that if that statement isn't retracted, by or, uh, Congressman Schiff by midnight on Sunday that I was going on record and I was disclosing all the facts to the American government, to the American citizen and the world. And a portion of the audio from that phone call was provided to Tucker by Bobulinski. This is Tony Bobulinski talking to Rob Walker, uh, ostensibly. Basically, Rob's position was if you go on record with all these facts, you'll bury all of us. If he doesn't come out on record, I am uh, providing the fact. Tony, you're just going to just you. bury all of us, man. You're just going to bury all of us, man. Come on, man. Uh, something else we learned from Tony Bobulinski is that, uh, and these were not uh, countries in which he was dealing. He comes into Biden, Inc. after this. But I hadn't heard some of the countries in which Hunter Biden was uh, doing his fancy deal making. Of course, we know about Burisma in Ukraine and we know about uh, Rosemont Seneca in China and now CFC in China. And we know a little bit about Kazakhstan. That's been recently disclosed. But there were more. Obviously, as we already discussed throughout 2015 and 2016, while Joe was still the sitting vice president of the United States, these guys had been doing extensive work around the world in places like Oman, Luxembourg, Romania, that I was being made aware of. But I obviously hadn't come off the bench and agreed to be part of this. I'm I'm sorry, I've got to interrupt you there. Oman, Luxembourg, Romania. Correct. So they don't speak any of these languages. Neither one of these guys has any record of success in business. Neither one has a background in international business. Why would they be doing business in Oman, Luxembourg and Romania? Uh, because, because they have relationships and they have the Biden name that they're able to set up meetings and get people to jump through hoops uh, in an interest to garner favor with the sitting vice president, Joe Biden. And uh, there is uh, you know more here uh, in terms of uh, Uh, Hunter Biden, an alleged uh, call from Hunter Biden uh, talking about uh, former Chinese spy master Patrick Ho, one of his business partners. There's information about Hunter Biden representing the uh, chairman of the Chinese energy company. Uh, At the same time, the Chinese energy company is uh, making a tender offer for a stake in Rosneft, which is a Russian state owned energy company. Uh, there's a lot here. There's layers to this. There's players, a lot of players here because of the expanse of the dealing. But here's the top line takeaway. This is what should everybody should be driving to between now and Tuesday. The allegation that not only did Joe Biden know that this was the family business and Joe Biden was a material party to the family business, if not in some respects directing or okaying the things that Hunter and Jim were doing and 
Number one, have there been violations of the law? Number two, as potentially the next president of the United States, but as a major party nominee for president at, at minimum, is he compromised by foreign powers whose interests are antithetical to the United States? And specific questions based on the specific assertions, the specific details that Tony Bobolinsky provided. That's what the American public should be demanding. This is Dan Crowder. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, uh, transitioning from our discussion of Tony Bobolinsky's uh, testimony, if you will, with uh, Tucker Carlson last night to uh, Joe Biden on the campaign trail uh, Joe Biden in Georgia. My name's Joe Biden. I'm Jill Biden's husband, and I am Kamala's running mate. <laughs> you all think I'm kidding, don't you? No, actually, we don't, especially after we heard you in Pennsylvania. My grandpapa's name is Ambrose Finnegan. At the kitchen table, I learned. My ears to say, my ears to say, Joey, nobody's better than you, but you're no better than anybody else. Maybe it's the Scranton. You got a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Worried about what they can make next month's mortgage payment. Well, it is what it is because he is who he is. And so on and so forth with uh, those uh, deep dives in terms of uh, policy and political philosophy. For more on uh, what may come to pass in uh, six days, we're pleased to be joined by Chris Bedford. He is uh, the author of the piece uh, that... Uh, details the parallels between 2020 and 2016. He's also senior editor at the Federalist and vice chairman of Young Americans for Freedom and the author of the book, The Art of the Donald, Lessons from America's Philosopher-in-Chief. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yeah, um, Joe Biden um, uh, having fun with the uh, notion that uh, Kamala Harris is uh, the uh, top of the ticket and uh, then struggling with uh, stringing together sentences in Pennsylvania. Neither is anything new, but we wonder if this is getting through amid uh, all the focus on Trump to close. Yeah, it's been it's it's kind of been wild to see how folks are reacting to to the way to Joe Biden's you know, fairly obvious and sadly public cognitive decline. I mean, you talk to anyone in America, and they they've seen this before because we have loved ones and family members and neighbors who we've we've seen go through this. Uh, and I did I have talked to a number of voters. I'm up here in Pennsylvania now who said that in the debate, the second debate, the last debate that was held just a few days ago was the first time they'd really seen it. And what, what's, one of the things that struck me about that is it certainly wasn't one of Joe Biden's worst performances or most embarrassing performances. The one woman who was a lifelong Democrat said, I thought he struggled to finish sentences. And it really and it was also the first time she heard anything about the Hunter Biden scandal. And it really kind of drew in how much this candidate's being shielded by networks and by CNN, by MSNBC, by CBS. It's they, no one had been exposed to that 
Whereas, you know, if, if you're listening to your show or reading The Federalist, watch, reading The Daily Caller, watching Fox News, you'll know all about it. It's, right. it's a wild disconnect. That's an interesting perception uh, the woman you're referencing had, because uh, as I suggested going into the debate, the, uh, um, the, 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 the very strict guidelines regarding time limits and uh, the, mic cut, the, the cutting off the mic when you exceed your time limit, that actually turned out to uh, would turn out and I think did turn out to benefit Trump because you let Joe Biden try to fill two minutes with cogency. And I think on p- particular answers, it's interesting that woman says that, because it struck me on particular answers uh, on issues that are really important to people like Obamacare and, and so by extension, health care. He 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 was, you know, rambling uh, in a way that made no sense, uh, particularly as you got sort of to the second minute of his two minute response. And so it's interesting to see that people picked up on that, that that uh, st- uh, restriction that actually uh, benefited Trump by letting Joe Biden have to fill two minutes. Oh, a great deal. And, and President Trump. His campaign must have known this. Uh, it's obviously the Democratic campaign knows that both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's great weaknesses for different reasons are public speaking. And because of that, they've largely hidden them from from view in a, in a large way compared to, for example, mo- most presidential campaigns in the last week. I, I, there's a suspicion that President Trump in his first debate was already sick. He was hospitalized days later. But whatever the reason for his performance in the first debate, uh, his, a lot of his viewers and a lot of people I've talked to in Wisconsin and Michigan and here had come to had come to see that first debate with popcorn, ready to see a defense of what he'd accomplished and ready to see Joe Biden speak and try to explain himself in a cogent way, which would have, which would have been difficult. They were a little disappointed by the interruptions and the and the attacks, and it, and it lent itself in a positive way to Biden's attack as trying to be the adult in the room. And the second debate was executed fairly flawlessly by the president to exa- for exactly the reason you mentioned. And, and because of the debate commission's new rules that allowed Biden to actually have to talk without interruption and explain himself and also lent it towards President Trump being able to explain exactly what his administration had accomplished and, what, what, and how that was different from his opponent. Uh, when we come back with uh, Christopher Bedford, I want to talk a little bit more nuts and bolts about what uh, may come to pass on Tuesday. Uh, Christopher Bedford, senior editor at The Federalist, vice chairman of Young Americans for Freedom, author of The Art of the Donald, Lessons from America's Philosopher-in-Chief. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Chris Bedford, senior editor of The Federalist, author of The Art of the Donald, Lessons from America's Philosopher-in-Chief. And uh, before the break, we're, uh, we, uh, Chris, you had mentioned that uh, you're in Pennsylvania. Uh, Jim Lee from Susquehanna Polling is the second pollster to suggest that Trump is going to carry Pennsylvania from what he's seeing and uh, narrowly win re-election, this along with uh, Robert Cahaley at uh, Trafalgar, who uh, correctly predicted the 2016 outcome, one of two polling outfits that did. Uh, what's your handle on, on Pennsylvania? And then, of course, the larger question. 
this has been out of the, th- the three Rust Belt states I've gone through in the last few weeks, Wisconsin, Michigan, and now Pennsylvania. This has been the closest and somewhat the most difficult to sense. But after a few days here with uh, my colleague, David Marcus, we've come to the conclusion from talking to voters in two of the most important swing counties that Donald Trump needs to win, Northampton County, which is just a lot, a lot, about an hour north of Philadelphia, and Luzerne County, which is closer to New York up in northeastern Pennsylvania. We've gotten a sense that the Democratic operation in Pennsylvania is more professional and more efficient and more organized than a lot of the GOP operations we've come across, which is unsurprising given Democratic hegemony over the past few decades. However, the voter enthusiasm and the real excitement that's not on a professional level but is on a strictly volunteer level, the flags flying, the rallies at the polling centers, that favors the GOP. Luzerne County, for example, is a place where Mitt Romney won pretty handily in 2008, a little less so in 2012. And then Donald Trump won by 19 points in 2016. Talking to some folks last night here just up north of Philadelphia, there's a large feeling amongst a group of people who have really identified as Democrats and their grandparents identified as Democrats, that old age where you could be a pro-life, Catholic, blue-collar Democrat is over and the party no longer represents you. And there's a feeling of kind of floating in aimlessness and and being lost and wondering, people's wives asking them, well, I think you're going to switch to the other side. And them saying, I don't know what side I am anymore. I don't know what party I am anymore. It's left to some undecided voters who are basically wrestling with their conscience. Do I vote the way that my family's voted for generations and the way I've identified? Or do I vote with the party that's actually speaking to the values that we've always held? That's coming down, and that leans towards President Trump's reelection. Well, and given that, how much is what's happening on the streets of Philadelphia over the last two nights, uh, how much does that inform those voters uh, who I suspect are most decidedly law and order voters? We've been a little surprised in some ways because I strongly suspected this would be the kind of thing that pushed uh, the educated and suburban women back into the red column. And they have largely been fleeing, we have found, across every state we've been to. However, it seems that the worries about COVID that they have have completely overwhelmed any ideas or fears about writing. However, among men, male voters in Pennsylvania and other places are incensed by it. The lawlessness, the rioting, the fires, and they're, they're guarded about it. They're, they don't like it. They're, they're afraid it could come to their community. And that's been a motivating factor for a lot of male voters. Well, especially considering what happened in Lancaster as well, that it's not just for big cities anymore. Exactly. It's been wild. Whether it's Albany and Buffalo or Lancaster or going down through Paul Ryan's district over in Wisconsin, they were rioting. It's the suburbs. It's it's places this is not supposed to happen. With respect to your column where you uh, sort of detail the highlights or the uh, parallels, highlight the parallels between 2016 and 2020, that this is essentially a rerun of 2016. There are some distinct differences, though, including uh, the issue matrix. You just mentioned how sort of COVID is overwhelming all other considerations among that uh, that uh, soft suburban female voter, college-educated suburban female voter cohort. Obviously, the the rioting and the violence on America's streets over the summer is something that's different from 2016 as well. Does the change in the issue matrix, does that portend for driving a different outcome? Or if a different outcome occurs, meaning Biden wins, will you go back and say, you know, this, a lot of similarities, but this was, this was the difference maker, this issue or that issue? Yes, COVID was the issue maker. We were discussing last night one of our Monday work meetings in early February and then in late February, where we were discussing this coming disease, if it is what it seems to be, is going to be an election changer. And how unfortunate 
unfortunate it is for America in general that we had to deal with this virus during a presidential election year, which just unfortunately pulls any sense of normalcy out of how our country deals with anything like a national crisis. That is a big shift, and it's, it's essentially the only reason that it seems that President Trump could lose re-election is because he's been saddled with this after a booming economy figuring out uh, or delivering on almost every single one of his campaign promises and and the, the union largely sticking together mixed with rioting on the left. The only way that Democrats could squeeze this out is with the fear and the, and the people who have lost their jobs uh, that, that is spread out across from coronavirus. And I will say across, in Pennsylvania, across Democratic and Republican lines, there's a real hatred of Governor Wolf, who has overseen the COVID response here. It doesn't matter if you're in a bar that doesn't want to talk politics, or you're talking to someone who leans left, they have a real dislike, uh, often graphic in their language, to the governor. But President Trump so far, it's still a local issue to them. And President Trump on that level hasn't been able to tie Biden to his party ally in that it's more been a question of his own leadership and, and the misfortunes he's dealt with. What, what about uh, the prospects? And this would be, of course, uh... delicious irony from my perspective, the prospect of increasing percentage of the black vote and the Latino vote, and and, and more particularly in other states than Pennsylvania, but just generally speaking now, the black vote. That especially seems to be true among men. Yeah, black and Latino voters in these swing states putting Trump over the top. Do you see that as a real possibility or is that just wishful thinking among conservatives? Yeah, I do see it as a real possibility. You've seen it not just on the high, on the, on the, on the, on the more superficial levels with with entertainers and others, but there's a huge swath of the black and Latino population that just like the white population that left the Democratic Party are at the end of the day working class people who have things, who have their own families and their own things they have to worry about, including law and order and essentially just their jobs and their industry. What a lot of the the modern Democratic Party doesn't understand is that this woke liberalism is really a luxury worry. It's these are the kind of problems that only the wealthy and the super educated can even begin to afford to think about or to create or to invent. And they're not the concerns of a lot of the actual constituents that they're seeking to represent. What are the concerns are are violence, policing and jobs and taking care of, of their duty, their family and their communities. And these are things that President Trump's resonated far more than than any blue messaging has. All right, so uh call it for us. What do you think happens Tuesday? I know some of the smartest people I know tell me I'm wrong, but I'm bullish that President Trump wins the uh, re-election. Christopher Bedford, senior editor of the Federalist, vice chairman of Young Americans for Freedom, author of The Art of the Donald, Lessons from America's Philosopher-in-Chief. Christopher Bedford, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show, and uh, just talking with uh, Chris Bedford from the Federalist about uh, Pennsylvania, but about the landscape generally, but specifically Pennsylvania, where he's situated. His uh, intuition that it uh, it goes for Trump. And if it does, maybe he'll have Melania to thank. Perhaps the most successful Trump rally to date has been uh, Melania on the trail in Eklund, Pennsylvania, where she was um, 
well-received and uh, quite pointed in her remarks, actually. Surprisingly pointed, starting with her husband. I do not always agree with the way he says things. (laughs) But it is important to him that he speaks directly to the people he serves. All right. Uh, And then uh, moving along to the opposition and uh, sort of a statement of principle, the difference between the two sides that, uh, you know, we don't lock down our free country. We solve the problems that confront a free people. We do not close down or hide in fear. We get to work to find real and lasting solutions. It's what sets up apart from any other country in the world. This is something that both political parties should support, encourage, and celebrate. No one should be promoting fear of real solutions for purely political ends. Of course, she's talking about uh, vaccine and other related ways to address the COVID-19 virus and the spread without these uh, draconian lockdowns of a free people. She also uh, reminded the audience and uh, the country uh, what the Dems were doing when word first started getting out that uh, the virus had gotten out. The Democrats have chosen to put their own agendas ahead of the American people's well-being. Instead, they attempt to create a divide, a divide on something that should be nonpartisan and non-controversial. A divide that causes confusion and fear instead of hope and security. That is not a leadership. Let us also not forget what the Democrats chose to focus on when COVID-19 first came into our country. While the president was taking decisive action to keep the American people safe, the Democrats were wasting American taxpayer dollars in a sham impeachment. Here, here, and uh, Melania closing out her remarks by um, warning against the uh, Biden-Harris, Harris-Biden, whichever you prefer, socialist agenda. Uh, she knows something about this, uh, don't forget, uh, from Slovenia, uh, Slovenia, part of Yugoslavia, as reorganized after World War II. Yugoslavia governed by a socialist dictator named Tito until 1980. So she knows of what she speaks. Joe Biden's policy and socialist agenda will only serve to destroy America and all that has been built in the past four years. We must keep Donald in the White House so he can finish what he started and our country can continue to flourish. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. Website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. 
A new study from NYU's Langone Hospital System reports its COVID-19 mortality rate declined by 77% from March to August after accounting for age, health risks, admission, vital signs, and other factors. The Houston Methodist Hospital System reported its mortality during the early summer surge was about 3.5% versus 12.1% in the spring. Deaths have also trended lower because the public is doing a better job of shielding the elderly and those at high risk, so opines the Wall Street Journal. The CDC reported last week the share of deaths in nursing homes declined by 45% between May and August. Individuals over the age of 85, 630 times more likely to die than those between 18 and 29, says the CDC. Huh. You wouldn't know it to uh, listen to the reporting on this and listen to politicians like uh, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker inveigh on the topic. The seven-day U.S. rolling case average has doubled from the recent low in mid-September. This includes New York and its neighbors, whose governors were hailed for supposedly controlling the virus, so rising even in states with strict restrictions and mask mandates, including in states like Illinois. And yet, with notable exceptions like El Paso, there is not a situation where healthcare systems are being overwhelmed. It just gave you some of the reviews of the significant decline in mortality associated with infection. And yet the hysteria not only is unabated, it seems to be increasing. I wonder if the mortality rate and the hysteria associated with COVID-19 actually have an inversely proportional relationship. The less deadly the disease gets, the more the hysteria spikes. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Stephen Novella. He's an academic neurologist at Yale University School of Medicine. He's the president and co-founder of the New England Skeptical Society and author of Neurologica blog. Professor Novella, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, my question, it seems as the mortality rate declines for those infected by COVID-19, the hysteria over caseload increases. Is that your sense? I wouldn't call it hysteria. I think this is absolutely appropriate concern. This is still an extremely contagious, extremely deadly virus. We are now heading into a third surge, which looks to be bigger than the first two. And we're heading into the winter months where people tend to be indoors more. Experts and physicians, I think, are reasonably concerned that we are not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel of this pandemic. So we still need to take it very seriously. Oh, I'm taking it seriously. But do we know even uh, which uh, phase of the surge we're in? Tony Fauci said uh, just this week we're still in the first phase. Yeah, we don't know because we're in the middle of it. We'll have to look back and see how it all plays out. But we're definitely in the middle of a third surge. What do you want to call it? A peak or a spike or a surge Mm -hmm. or a wave or whatever. Pretty much 100% of respiratory pandemics throughout history have multiple waves. And again, yet uh, despite the increase in case, the surge that you described, hospitalizations are still 30% below their spring and summer peaks. So to flatten the curve to protect the healthcare infrastructure, that is not really in crisis across the country at this point. And it seems like actually we've moved well beyond that. The nomenclature continues to evolve as a politician might say, it was flattened, then it was slow, now it's stop. We can't stop it. So why do we have people saying we can? Well, we can reduce it. The pandemic is going to run its course. Essentially, most experts are saying that we're buying time until we get a vaccine. And the vaccine is really going to be the only meaningful way to bring this down to you know, non-pandemic levels where we can get back to some kind of normalcy. And until we get an effective vaccine that we can widely distribute, we want to minimize cases as much as possible. Even though comparing our current mortality to what was there in the spring gives you a false sense that this isn't a deadly virus. 
numbers, but that's not true. Again, those early numbers were elevated for a number of reasons. One of the reasons the researchers of the study that you mentioned, there's other studies, one out of UK, for example, that showed that ICU mortality decreased from 41 to 21%. 21% is still huge for any illness when you're talking about you know, mm -hmm. death. But part of the reason is, is that the most vulnerable people, to put it bluntly, have already died from this pandemic. So the pandemic is moving on to people who are healthier at baseline. Also, the measures that are being used, like when you wear a mask, it not only reduces the probability that you'll get sick from the virus, but if you do catch it, you'll probably get a smaller amount of virus. And so you might get a milder illness. So mask wearing and social distancing is, is shifting to less severe infection and also avoiding the infection. And we're also getting better at treating it, no question. It's not so much the therapeutics as well, just that doctors understand this virus better. You know, so there are things that, like, we know to delay ventilation as long as possible. That ventilation actually can damage the lungs if you start it too early in a patient with this illness. Or that you want to rest people on their stomach rather than their back can help in some cases as well. But one of the biggest discoveries actually was the fact that steroids are useful. And steroids are not a new therapeutic or not a new intervention. And with any serious infection, we always have the question, what's worse, the infection itself or the, the body's immune reaction against the infection? In this case, in seriously ill COVID patients, the immune response is causing most of the damage. And so using steroids to throw water on that fire really improved outcomes. Like the um, convalescent plasma is also helping. The other ones, not so much. Remdesivir's latest study did not increase survival. You know, uh, hydroxychloroquine hasn't been effective. So other things, you know, the therapeutics are, are, are coming, but there, there isn't really any game changer right now, um, I, although I think that steroids are probably the most effective intervention that we've taken up. Like dexamethasone. Yeah, dexamethasone is a steroid, correct. So the virus is definitely deadly, but again, individuals over the age of 85 are 630 times more likely to die than those between 18 to 29. Under 50, you basically have a more likely chance of dying from the flu than you do COVID-19. So those are signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration, more than 20,000 doctors and public health professionals from around the, the world, led by Stanford, Harvard, Oxford, in terms of at least known infectious disease experts from those universities. Do they have a point when they say uh, lockdowns, bad idea, focused on those who are vulnerable, particularly at this stage, better idea? That's the smarter public policy to be more surgical? No, I don't think so for a few reasons. And I think you know, the, the notion that we are going to get to herd immunity is we're learning, you know, again, we're, we're in the middle of this. It's a novel virus. We're still learning a lot about it. But what we know now predicts that that's natural herd immunity is not going to happen. The immunity you get from getting infected and surviving the infection tends to wear off very, very quickly. Um, and the number of people that would need to get infected in order to provide any kind of herd immun immunity would lead to millions of deaths in the U.S. And that's not, I think, a path that we want to take, just giving up and letting the pandemic run wild and just saying eventually we'll get, it'll burn itself out or we'll get to herd immunity naturally is, is not the way to go. And I think that majority, the, the strong consensus among experts is that we should not try to do that. We want to keep the numbers as low as possible until we can get some serious therapeutics, but really specifically a vaccine. And the other thing is we know that saying, quote unquote, shutdown is a lot, that's a lot of territory, right? That's not one thing. We know that wearing a mask and social distancing works. It works really well. It's the most effective measure. It can really? save hundreds of thousands of lives. And so there's really no scientific controversy about that. When you talk about shutting down, 
there's a range of things that can be done and that, that should be individual to the local situation. This is not shutting down the economy. This is just limiting the kind of super spreader events that really magnified the pandemic. And so that, those are very local uh, decisions that need to be made based upon how the virus is spreading through the an, a community. Yeah, there's there's a lot that, that you just said that I'd like to explore, but but uh, but but let's stick on the lockdown piece. So uh, should yeah. should child care centers be open? Should children be in school? Young children can catch and spread the virus. They can spread it to their parents, but they are definitely not as vulnerable to it as uh, as older populations. Well, it's all risk versus benefit, right? There's the, I think the risk to younger children is less, um, and the benefit of them being in school is definitely significant. You know, the American Academy of Pediatrics said kids really need to be in school, like at the elementary school age, and we should make every effort to do that. So I think in, for, for that particular situation, for example, the issue may come down to, well, what do we have to do so that the schools can safely remain open if they, if they are already open or, or well, 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 they haven't already. Well, 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 just just on the, the matter of children, I mean, researchers from your university looked at 57,000 child care providers across all 50 states and concluded, I'm quoting this published in Pediatrics, the journal, that uh, children did not contribute to the spread of the virus to providers. Yeah, no, I think they said, I mean, they can't. They can um, catch the virus. They can be spreaders. Well, anything's but it's possible. Not significant, but, that, but what does that study tell you about what, what, uh, how should that inform our policy? Or should we just ignore it out of an abundance of caution and say we... we... No, but you have to, you, uh, we're not ignoring that, but you have to put that into context. That's with precautions, right? That's not without precautions. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. It's re- so, as I said, it's reasonable to have things like daycare centers and schools open but with precautions, with mask wearing and social distancing and not having too many kids in one room, et cetera. And we all know, I mean, if you have small kids, you know how hard it is to get them to comply you know, to rules. So the infrastructure has to be there for them. Professor, we're, I- we're up against the clock. I'm sorry, but I appreciate your time. Professor Stephen Novella from Yale University School of Medicine. Thank you. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Moving from a rather frustrating conversation with Professor Novella from Yale. I wish we had more time to for me to challenge him on some of the assertions he made that very much in doubt, but... Uh, the overall uh, challenge was to lockdown policy, lockdowns as a first resort. Well, uh, we're going from lockdowns for COVID in big cities to lockdowns because big city mayors and prosecutors have turned over their streets to the mob. And this is exactly what's happened in Philadelphia over the last two nights, Monday and Tuesday night. Uh, Reportedly more than a thousand people out rioting and looting in Philadelphia, uh, ostensibly in protest, right, rioting and looting. Uh, knocking over a Walmart, knocking over a famous footwear in protest of a police-involved shooting of a knife-wielding suspect. Uh, this uh, tweet last evening from the uh, Philadelphia Office of Emergency Management. The Philadelphia Police Department is requesting that all residents in the 12th, 16th, 18th, 19th, 24th, 25th, and 26th districts remain indoors except when necessary. These areas are experiencing widespread demonstrations that have turned violent with looting. You know, this is what uh, the press corps calls uh, 
peaceful protests intensified or mostly peaceful protests as uh, you know, a building is burning behind those on the scene reporting. But uh, consider that more than a half a dozen police districts telling uh, or the, the police telling residents of more than a half a dozen police districts to shelter in place, shelter in place with covid. And then to the extent we allow you to come out of covid, don't come out because you have to shelter in place because we've uh, endu- we, we've uh, essentially encouraged, appeased the mob to the point where we have lost control of our streets. Hmm. And this is uh, the sentiment that was being expressed by those erstwhile peaceful protesters turned violent. Every city, every town, burn the precinct to the ground. Police precincts. Is that uh, the uh, mantra of the civilly disobedient? Burn police precincts to the ground. These are uh, police reformers, are they? Is that what they mean when they say reimagine police? Hmm. A couple of other notes here on the topic. Again, Monday night, officers arrested 91 people, including three for assaulting police, 76 for burglary. On Tuesday, Mayor Jim Kenney and uh, Commissioner Outlaw. And does that name ring, uh, ring a bell to you? Commissioner Outlaw? Um, Commissioner Outlaw used to be the head of the Portland's police department. Yeah, <laughs> that's where she was. Now she's in Philadelphia. How's it going in Portland? Going to turn the streets here over to Antifa or some iteration of Antifa in Philadelphia? Remarkable. The uh, department is investigating the shooting, was what uh, the mayor and the police commissioner said. Uh, it's worth noting some context here. After previous unrest in the city, the city council, Philadelphia City Council, reduced police funding by more than $33 million. This week, the council is expected to vote on a bill that would permanently ban tear gas, pepper spray, and other less than lethal weapons during protests. And when those protests turn violent, then what are you going to say if the police respond in a way to, in a legitimate way, use of force, but use of deadly force in response to a lethal threat? And you're, you've taken away their less than lethal respond, available responses. But OK, Philadelphia's district attorney, who I mentioned on the show yesterday, Larry Krasner is another Soros funded non prosecution prosecutor. He has previously claimed that, quote, policing and prosecution are both systemically racist. Huh. So uh, you have the mayor and the newly minted police commissioner straight out of Portland uh, appeasing the mob. Even as police make arrests, we'll see what Larry Krasner does, considering that what the police and the prosecutor's office are systemically racist. (laughs) Is he still systemically racist, even though Larry Krasner's in charge? So is he part of the racism? I guess the point of the ironic thing is in this day and age with critical race theory uh, disappearing people's brain stems, he would say, yes, I I am. We're all endemically racist, all us white people. Mm hmm. Well, Julio Rosas, who writes at Town Hall, townhall.com, he was on scene in Philadelphia, too, and he's been on scene in a number of cities beset by rioters and looting. And he said he hadn't seen anything like what happened in Philadelphia on Tuesday night since the uh, immediate aftermath of what happened in Minneapolis upon the uh, the video being released of George Floyd being killed by that uh, police officer in Minneapolis. Stores being looted in Philadelphia, police guarding the Walmart that was looted earlier. And he's got uh, at uh, on his Twitter feed, he's got all sorts of pictures 
uh, as well. So a- again, I I put this uh, to people for consideration, including those suburban women that uh, suggest that uh, Trump is to blame for COVID and, and all things relate to COVID. They don't care about uh, law and order. Well, COVID is going to be minimized at some point. But uh, you can't minimize giving streets, whether in urban or suburban communities, over to mob action. Uh, Not without consequence. Not without something like what happened in Kenosha with uh, Rittenhouse uh, killing those two protesters, rioters, whatever you want to call them. In other words, people taking the law into their own hands when they see that uh, law enforcement and their civilian political authorities won't, won't affect their protection. So it's very much like what uh, Damani Felder said in that uh, video we played a couple months ago and uh, that he filmed in Dallas. We talked to him about it. Damani Felder, who's a, a black walkaway guy, saying uh, as these uh, protesters turn violent, cracked up a restaurant in Dallas and interrupted people enjoying the outdoors and a meal. He just said simply, this is what they want. What do you want? Well, he actually didn't say, what do you want? I'm saying that. He said, this is what they want. He was pointing out, this is what they want. They want disruption. They want you to know that their threat is omnipresent. They want you to know that unless you comply, they will upend your life. So what do you want? By the way, it's not clear what the police involved in the shooting in Philadelphia knew or didn't know about uh, the man they fatally shot. But what we know about him is that um, he had pled guilty to robbery, assault, and possessing an instrument of crime in 2017. Authorities saying he kicked down the door of a woman and put a gun to her head. He had been sentenced to 11 to 23 months in jail. 2013, he pled guilty to resisting arrest and punching an officer in the face. Daniel Outlaw saying Tuesday, several questions that need to be answered, including what the officers knew when they responded, what was put out by the radio, and how any previous contact with the suspect factored into yesterday. Don't know that as of... Uh, that reporting uh, for officers, uh, the suggestion that officers use a taser rather than a gun. Neither officer had a taser. We talked a little bit about uh, some of the training uh, that goes into dealing with an assailant who is aggressive with a knife and the uh, so-called uh, taller rule or 21 foot rule. And that's certainly a co- an opportunity to educate the public about that, how the police are to respond in such a situation or how they're they're trained to respond in such a situation, whether you agree with it or not, how they train, how they are trained, how they are trained and uh, a discussion of whether or not that is reasonable in such circumstances. But again, I say whether they knew about uh, this individual's background or not, the response to that event, that's what they want. City, suburb, wherever it occurs, wherever they can conjure up a reason. What do you want? Maybe you should put that question to some of your friends and those in your circles of influence in advance of Tuesday. This is Dan Prof. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Jason Swar is the editor of an outlet called Skillset, sort of a alpha male type of uh, outlet. 
he uh, happened upon a Trump parade in his neighborhood, you know, one of these organic events that you see around the country, whether it's uh, by land or by sea or by air, uh, not orchestrated by the campaign, but um, just, uh, as I said, or organic, orchestrated by uh, people within a particular community. And here was his um, reaction to what he saw when he went to check it out. So I come out of the uh, corner store and there was a, um, a Trump, what is it, the parade, I guess, right? You know, miles of cars with flags and on the corner there was about 50, 50 plus people. And I'm like, man, I haven't, it's here, it's in my neighborhood. I haven't experienced one of these before, so I'm going to go check it out. So I went over and, uh, and what I saw, wow, it was amazing. It, there was, I don't know, man. There was black people. There was white people. There was Hispanics. I saw Asians driving by beep, and I saw Native Americans beeping. Man, I saw everybody was freaking happy, and that's something I'm like, huh? What is going on here? I haven't felt that in a long time, man. Um, and it was something that was it was refreshing. It was cool to see. There was no negativity. There was no one yelling. Biden, Biden sucked. Not even come up at all. The 90 minutes I was there, just watching, man. Um, I saw people hugging, fist bumping. Just, I saw everybody getting along. It was like the first sense of community I've seen in a long time, man. And I, and not only community, um, I haven't felt patriotism like that. I don't know, man. Maybe since 9/11. It's, it's that. It was weird, man. You know, it comes from a guy that's fought overseas, fought a couple wars and and whatnot. It was. Um, it was refreshing. It was refreshing to see Americans happy and, and getting along regardless of what they, what color, what, whatever, religion, it doesn't matter, man. So if you, um, I'll never tell you how to vote, ever. I'm not, that's not my business. But if you've never experienced something like that, or uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe seek one of these things out and go observe because it was, um, it was refreshing and uh, it put me in a damn great mood, man. So anyway, have a good weekend, y'all. Thanks, Jason. Uh, I uh, experienced that for the first time. Uh, I mean, doing a Trump rally, this one orchestrated by the campaign when I went to the rally that he had in Waukesha, Wisconsin on Saturday. It was uh, a pleasant experience. Um, people, I mean, again, you have people that are of uh, a particular political persuasion. They agree on getting Trump across the finish line. So there shouldn't be so much acrimony. But uh, to the but but still, does just because you agree on a candidate doesn't mean that you're going to be lifelong friends. But it's just a sort of a different type of atmosphere. It, there is enthusiasm. If there wasn't enthusiasm, you wouldn't have twenty five or thirty thousand people show up to all of these rallies that he's having, and and there indeed and again an indicator of the enthusiasm. Uh, people were polite, friendly, uh, introducing yourself in a way. I mean, Wisconsin's probably a little bit more friendly than Chicago Metro just to begin with. But uh, but I mean, people introducing themselves and just, uh, you know, enjoying fellowship with one another about the election. Yeah, but uh, just about about the weather, how cold it was, how long they stood in line and everything else, too. So there is something to that. Uh, maybe uh, all those Trump supporters aren't uh, these deplorable people that the left and frankly, some never Trumpers on the right sort of insinuate that they are. Maybe they are actually faithful Christians uh, and uh, people of other religious persuasions. Maybe they are actually um, independent minded, right thinking uh, black Americans and Latino Americans and Asian Americans, not in the numbers I wish they were uh, in uh, support of Trump, in support of conservatism. But um, the sort of overture that Trump has made, particularly on issues like school choice, cannot be ignored, even though uh, those who oppose Trump from 
across the political spectrum and inside the Beltway suggest that we do ignore those things. Uh, For more on all of this and uh, a look ahead to Tuesday where Trump seems to be closing, and that's not just me saying it, that's not my woman's intuition, that's uh, our friend uh, Mayor at uh, the IBT, uh, IBD tip poll suggesting that uh, when I talked to him on Monday, Trump was down seven. Today, he's down four. If he, he thinks if Trump gets within three, he wins the electoral vote. IBD tip, one of the two polls that correctly predicted his victory in 2016, along with Trump Falger. Rasmussen has him up uh, nationally as well. So uh, you know, polling is polling. It's snapshots in time. But certainly there is evidence to support the idea that the race is closing in the final days while Trump is doing three rallies a day. And Melania was out in Pennsylvania doing a rally of her own yesterday. Uh, And uh, Joe Biden is hiding in his basement and trying to avoid generic questions about uh, Biden Inc. business dealings. When we come back, uh, we'll be joined by Washington Examiner's Tim Carney. And uh, we're going to talk about a number of issues, including the Tony Bobulinski interview with Tucker Carlson and the associated Biden Inc. scandal, or certainly the questions surrounding Biden Inc., Right after this. Listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We're now pleased to be joined by the Washington Examiner's Tim Carney. Tim, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, good to be back. So um, starting with uh, Biden, Inc., with the Bobulinski interview last night with Tucker Carlson, whether you found Bobulinski credible or not, and I did, generally speaking, not without conflict, but credible, two different things. And the level of specificity combined with the text messages and documents he provided to support what he was saying, it's easily fact-checked, much of what he said because it's matters of public record, things like was he at the Milken conference back when he allegedly met Joe Biden there when Joe Biden was going out to L.A. to speak at the Milken conference, things like that, in addition to the documents related to the business dealing. It does not demand the D.C. press corps or anybody in the press corps track down Hunter Biden, show up at a rare Biden public event and press him specifically on these matters, not, hey, what do you make of this so he can offer the generic yeah. dismissals that he's been offering for the last week? No, that's exactly right. And when he's been asked specific questions and answered, he's answered them in tellingly evasive ways. The first New York Post report was about a Burisma official thanking Hunter for introducing him to Joe when Joe was vice president. And the answer on that was clearly a dodge. When the Biden campaign was asked, they said, There's nothing on our official schedule that shows a meeting happened, which is to say they probably met something else. Biden was speaking at a very large event and spoke with a lot of the people at a Washington hotel. So asked specific questions, you get some telling answers. But there's been a decision by most of the press corps that they have to stay away from this story. And I think it's that they spent four years getting yelled at for reporting on Hillary Clinton's emails and Comey's investigation. And the the working of the refs by the Democratic establishment has succeeded. And the media has decided they can't stand getting beat up by their friends. So they're going to stay away from the Hunter Biden. Uh, Andrew Mikta 
who is a uh, academic uh, dean of the College of International Security Studies at George Marshall European Center for Security Studies in Germany, writes in the Wall Street Journal, The American Experiment is on Life Support. And he uh, talks about a little bit of uh, what we're seeing in part in Philadelphia the last two nights. The uh, violence in all its forms suggests that tribalism based on group identity is poised to succeed the larger national community that for more than two centuries has protected and expanded freedom around the world. The American nation state is a unique experiment, unparalleled in history, and it is in perilous straits at the moment that one would argue based on who the coalition partners are for the respective sides, will be in even a more precarious place if Joe Biden wins on Tuesday. I mean, you mentioned my my book title earlier, Alienated America. My view on the American dream is I don't put the big emphasis on sort of the national unity because I think that is something that Mm. follows from community strength. Think about it. Where do you do your 4th of July? Generally, it's your local neighborhood. Memorial Day, when we were kids, it was a local parade. In a lot of places here, you go to your Heroes Hill where, you know, the people from your town who went off to war and died, they were carried back and they were buried there. American patriotism and national unity has always manifested itself in groups and on local levels. So I, I think we can't assume that group identity is at, a, you know, or, or smaller allegiances is at odds with national unity. No, no, the difference no. Is that, but that's, they, that's not the argument, about though. Attacking. Yeah. That's so, not yeah, the argument, thanks. though. The argument is not. First of all, unity is not a natural right, occurring. Unity is not the norm, yeah. right? Yeah, but so the problem isn't. I hate it when people say tribalism is a problem. We need to have tribes, right? Yeah. The problem is that the people who that this current group identity isn't grounded in sort of natural, organically or, uh, uh, arising localities or religion or traditions or anything like that. It's grounded in ideology, and it's an ideology dedicated to tearing down the ideas behind our nation and and dedicated to tearing down the nuclear family and that sort of thing. So it it really is a a, a real threat, but not because it's, it's small groups. I I know that I want to clarify. Yeah. I don't think Mikta is concerned about the the little platoons of democracy that uh, Burke wrote about either. I think he's concerned about those groups that are prevailing in terms of position of authority in the cultural institutions that do not believe in peaceful pluralism, which is where you're getting to. And which is why I, I go back to say if peaceful pluralism loses on Tuesday, which I think the loss represents a Biden victory, then give us an assessment of where you think we go from here, since you've written so much about uh, alienated America as per your so, book title. Uh, the peaceful pluralism is a perfect word. Sort of, are people allowed to get together and do their own things or no? What do you think is going to happen to the – you saw what they, they tried to do with Amy Coney Barrett and say, oh, she was on the board of a Christian school. You would hire a, a gay teacher but would say, no, our code of conduct doesn't allow you to get married to another dude while you're our teacher. That sort of thing is – won't be allowed. You won't be allowed. Catholic hospitals don't abort babies, and the ACLU is suing them to say you have to do it. This is not Catholic hospitals trying to outlaw abortion. They're saying we're going to have our own institution, and it's going to do things differently than what other institutions do, and we're going to have our own little spheres of liberty, of society, of community, and we're going to follow our own rules. That's not allowed anymore. You see Twitter is saying, increasingly saying, no, there's one set of rules for everybody. It's going to be top-down. 
we're going to enforce it. Gone is the day of, okay, don't follow somebody if you don't like what they're tweeting. Gone is the day of, okay, you know what? Separation of church and state means church doesn't mess with state and state doesn't mess with church. Now it's going to be church is going to follow the marching orders of the state. That animosity towards pluralism means you guys won't be able to do stuff together in the way that you want. Everybody's got to play by the same exact script. Well, exactly. My my argument is essentially we're going to go from physical lockdowns today to metaphysical lockdowns in a Biden uh, under a Biden presidency. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I don't think it's because Biden has a passion for it. I think Kamala Harris has a passion for it. We know that she goes after crisis pregnancy centers. We know that she went after pro-life filmmakers. Uh, she's a prosecutor, <laughs> and, and she's going to prosecute a culture war. And it's uh, the culture war. Some people on the left still think it's about the, the right trying to impose their values on everybody else. No, it's the right trying to impose their values on themselves and not being allowed to. And it's because the Democratic Party that Biden is the titular head of has a passion for that culture war more than anything else. Kamala does. Biden's administration will. We know that a Democratic-run Congress will. That's a great line. The right is trying to impose the values on themselves. They're trying to live their values. Exactly. That's a, that's a great way to put it. Tim Carney, senior political columnist for The Washington Examiner, author of Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Thanks, Sam. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. As we were discussing with uh, Tim Carney about the uh, precarious uh, state of the American experiment, uh, there is uh, some evidence of uh, the backlash growing. Some good news, I I suppose. Uh, this sign from the Oaks Market, the um, Oaks Farm, Oaks Farms Market, I should be specific here, in Naples, Florida, <laughs> uh, posted on the sign. You know, usually you're getting used to the signs, a mask required for entrance and so forth. This is a bit different. Attention customers, mask exemption guidelines. Those in our lovely government have ordered all persons entering indoor facilities to wear a mask. If you have a medical condition that prevents you from wearing a mask, you are exempt from this order. Due to HIPAA and the Fourth Amendment, we cannot legally ask you about your medical condition. Therefore, if we see you without a mask, we will assume you have a medical condition and we will welcome you inside to support our business. I love the logical drill down on this. It's very good. The Oaks uh, Farms Market in Naples, Florida. Mm hmm. Uh, You got uh an exemption from wearing the mask. If you have a medical condition, we can't ask you about the medical condition. Therefore, we'll assume you have a medical condition. Don't worry about the mask. Uh, we're not interested in security theater. We're interested or COVID safety theater. We're interested in your business and our relationship with you. Interesting. And then something that uh, Molly Hemingway over the Federalist tweeted out, which is fun. I hope this campaign catches fire around the country. And I mean that only metaphorically. You have to be I have to issue caveats to such statements in these times. The uh, self-righteous pumpkin 
hashtag self-righteous pumpkin campaign. Uh, apparently, uh, people are going around to um, their neighbors who are sporting the hate has no home here signs and the I believe in tolerance. I believe in this. I believe in that. You know, announcing the things they don't believe in. Announcing the things that do have a home there. Right. So this message and it's nice is sort of on um, uh, construction paper. The individual uh fashioned a pumpkin and then you just uh, pre-print this message and you cut and paste it onto the pumpkin so you can uh, tag these signs with a a friendly note of congratulations hello i'm the self-righteous pumpkin i believe you've done an incredible job announcing your moral superiority to your neighbors you are truly better than those other people i'm visiting you so you get proper recognition for your boasting Hashtag self-righteous pumpkin. The only thing I worry about the self-righteous pumpkin campaign is that the irony, the sarcasm will actually be lost on those statist drones who put such signs in their yards. But I appreciate the effort nonetheless. Anything, any sort of uh, peaceful protest of backlash to that sort of uh, Orwellian think that afflicts particularly the more well-heeled suburbs of America. This is Dan Proff. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft Show or at Dan Proft. Either one works. Both work. We're... uh Please be joined uh, coming up next with our friend Michael Warren Davis, the editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine. Uh, he's uh, written a number of pieces since we last spoke that are particularly interesting with the election now less than a week away. And one is uh, the uh, Second Amendment issue uh, on the topic of people's individual Second Amendment rights, not from a um, constitutional perspective against the backdrop of the recent confirmation and swearing in of Amy Coney Barrett, including that, but more from a practical point of view. And uh, probably made or the more practical as a reminder this close to the election with the rioting going on in Philadelphia the last two evenings. Michael Warren Davis reminds us what uh, Japanese Admiral Yamamoto once said. You cannot invade mainland United States. There would be a rifle behind each blade of grass. Michael Warren Davis writing, he was right. From Virginia's yeoman farmers to the cowboys of Arizona, Americans have always prized self-reliance above all other virtues. And self-defense is integral to self-reliance. Events of the last few months seem to be reawakening that spirit of rugged individualism in the hearts of our countrymen. It certainly seems that they are, particularly as uh, faith in other institutions, most notably those institutions whose primary charge is the protection of their constituents, meaning government at every level, continue to seem to fail and um, moralize in uh, lieu of accountability for their failure. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Warren Davis, editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine. And W. Davis, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Dan. It's interesting uh, because you would think maybe there's a, an inverse, uh, a, a surprising inverse 
relationship between the growth of government and individualism, you would think it would actually be uh, proportional as government grows, the individual becomes less individualistic, a more uh, award of the state. But what you're suggesting is maybe there's a little bit of uh, recoiling going on to the growth of that government, particularly in the era of rolling lockdowns. And that is uh, reigniting that spirit of self-reliance and rugged individualism and the understanding that whether you want to or not, you may be required to provide for your own self-defense. You know, I think in places like Europe, the growth of government absolutely has begun to dwarf the individual. You see a lot of that sort of cowardly subservience to, to the government in uh, particularly places like Scandinavia, but even increasingly in Britain, especially, as you say, with the COVID lockdowns. But America was always going to be different, wasn't it? Because this is our national ethos. Again, the, that rugged individualism that Teddy Roosevelt extolled, that idea of manifest destiny, that we as Americans have a, a special place in this world to sort of make our wills manifest you know, all over this continent. To do that, it takes a certain amount of grit, and you just can't wait around for the bureaucrats to, you know, to give you the proper licenses to pave the roads. You gotta, you know, you gotta get in a wagon, and you gotta get a horse, and you gotta just, you know, hit the Oregon Trail, regardless of when your ancestors came here, your ethnicity, your creed, whatever. That's imbued deep in our souls, just as American, as the American people. And uh, yeah, you know, with not only with the COVID lockdowns, but with the complete collapse of law and order in places like Kenosha and Portland. Again, we were either going to sort of cower in our homes and, and wait for the government to, to sort of come in and clean everything up, or we were going to take matters into our own hands. And that's obviously not a call for some kind of boogaloo militia. But I mean, again, Americans have always believed in our right to self-defense. And, you know, integral to that right to self-defense is the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And, you know, that's why it's there. It's so that the American people can defend ourselves against any threat, foreign and domestic. And that's what we're going to do. As, you know, as long as there's any of that real American fighting spirit left in us, we're not going to roll over and cower in our homes. It was such a momentous occasion, the uh, confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. But perhaps uh, we're uh, <laughs> putting too much responsibility on her shoulders to uh, instill or reinstill a, an appreciation for the strictures of the Constitution in terms of the governance of our country. You know, there's only so much the Supreme Court can do if a wide swath of the populace thinks that um, those words in our Constitution and our founding documents can be erased and rewritten to suit the times. And despite what you're describing about uh, the rugged individualism and the history of our country and that being that actually being part of our DNA, again, I mean, there's half the country. Maybe we'll find out on Tuesday more than half the country that seems to reject that. Uh, how do those competing philosophies uh, coexist? That's a very interesting question. I don't it doesn't necessarily for very long. I think the problem with this moment, as you allude to, is, uh, you know, I, I'm actually I'm not a libertarian at all. Um, I agree with Edmund Burke, who said that government is a contrivance of human wisdom to provide for human wants. I'm very comfortable with government. I think that it can do a lot of good for us. But, you know, it's funny that, you know, left or right, libertarian, authoritarian, whatever you are in this country, we're all obsessed with politics. And, you know, whether the government is the fount of all good or the fount of all evil, we're all, we, we've developed this kind of monomaniacal fixation with government. When, you know, <laughs> all of life's richness uh, and all of really, you know, everything that we do that's good in this life takes place basically outside of the government. I don't think it's even necessarily a question of, you know, are we going to become sort of a status authoritarian state or are we going to become a libertarian minarchy? But are we going to take back our lives from politics? Are we going to develop that self-reliance? Um, are we going to learn to provide for ourselves and defend ourselves 
as human beings have done for the better part of you know five thousand years or more. Uh, so you know that's the that's the real question. You know, I, I've I've written about in some of the articles that uh, we've talked about on the show. I've written about how uh, a lot of what's going on in America today really closely mirrors the uh, the fall of the Roman Empire. We've become mm-hmm. very comfortable, very dependent on government, very you know culturally and morally decadent. Uh, and you know the, the the only antidote to that is to sort of wean ourselves off of not only you know big government but big tech, big business, and to uh, and to and to seize our independence from these these institutions that we've given way too much power to. And, and um, but, you know, but, and, but seizing that independence. Um, so uh, I spoke with Anthony Esselin uh, on the program yesterday about his piece at very good uh, friend of mine. yeah. He, I mean he's he's the best in in a. In a sane world, Anthony Esselin would be a household name and not some of these uh, ciphers on cable news. Um, so his piece in uh, in, new, in a public discourse uh, from many nothing, where he basically says, look, uh, the, the, uh, we have a culturalist culture because there's no agreed upon foundation from which we're all operating. So seize our independence from government and big tech. That that means that we have to believe in something, because as Chesterton observed, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. So we're in the believe in anything phase. So how do we get back to believing in God as the sort of common formation of uh, our understanding of the common formation of citizenship in this representative republic? It, it just doesn't seem like there's an obvious way back. Gosh, that's a great point. Um, I'm actually so I'm I'm working on a book that's out next year called The Reactionary Mind, and uh, part of it is. I've done this deep dive into medieval history, and uh, and it's interesting that you know f- feudalism, which is really you know the most authentically you might say Christian form of government that ever existed, simply because you know the the, the Catholic Church was the was the most powerful institution in those days. Um, there were a lot of it, it, it's very very different from what we learn in the history books. You know, serfs had a, had far more rights than. Uh, than even many of us do now. Um, they couldn't be evicted from their land. Most of them had like 12 acres of land on average. Sometimes they got half the year off due to religious feasts. Um, and it's so you have this. On the one hand, you have these these kings and these lords that are in theory quite powerful. But uh, on the other hand, you have these um, these little villages uh, of, of, that are essentially um, <laughs> self sufficient. And I, think I mean, those, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's just I'm just thinking about this, and it's sort of depressing. When uh, some people and myself include think we're on Hayek's road to serfdom, you're suggesting, man, we need to get back to being serfs before we get back to actually being, you know, fully independent, uh, God fearing beings. We're, we're we're a lot far. We're way past the road to serfdom. We're trying to get back to the road to serfdom. That's how far gone it is. I said a couple of times in the book that this wasn't a neo-feudalist manifesto, but then I went back and took all those references out because it <laughs> kind of is a neo-feudalist manifesto. But look, I mean, we don't need we don't need lords and kings and stuff like that. That's not that's not really the point, as I think you probably gather. But um, you know, because you, you you serve you as 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 Jesus Christ Himself said, you either serve God or you serve Mammon. And uh, if you're serving Mammon, it means that you're you're dependent on the government, you're dependent on big business, you're dependent on big tech. And there's no room in your life for for God, for religion, for family, for community. Um, those aren't the institutions that sort of buttress you, that that, that surround you and, and give you definition. It's it's the you know it's the it's the state, it's the uh, it's the brands that you buy, it's the, the, the all the virtues that you signal on your Twitter or your Instagram. Uh, and to and and yeah, I mean, I think the beginning of uh, of reawakening. Uh, you know, you and I, Christians. 
the, for us, I think the beginning to reawakening that faith in the American people is to push mammon aside in all of its forms, to, to, to get away from those false gods that we've set up for ourselves, and, uh, and, to, and to get back to the roots of what it means to be a human being. Again, worship, family, love, community, uh, neighborliness, charity. Uh, so, yeah, I, again, burn, you know, burn the false altars, and then the real altars can grow up in their place. He is Michael Warren Davis, editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine. M.W. Davis, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, building off our conversation with uh, Crisis Magazine's Michael Warren Davis on those things that uh, divide us and uh, what is necessary for some sort of reunification of uh, common understanding of living in a free society. Uh, We're pleased to be joined now by Jeff Rubin, who's a former chief economist at CIBC World Markets, former senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation, and the award-winning author of The Expendables, how the middle class got screwed by globalization. He's written a piece in Quillette that uh, Quillette.com, what divides us is class, not race, which is a formulation we've talked about a good deal on this show. Academics like uh, Michael Lind at the University of Texas, Joel Kotkin, who've written books on the uh, from various angles, but sort of coming to the same or very similar conclusions. This time it's not an academic, but the former chief economist at one of Canada's biggest banks saying so. Jeff Rubin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Explain how you see the uh, divide in, in the Western world. Um, you, obviously, you talk about the middle class being screwed by globalization, but how, how does this play itself out where those that uh, have made their way to middle income status can uh, be aligned with those immigrants or indigenous in Canada, United States, the Western world, who are trying to do the same? Right. Well, it's a complicated relationship. But I guess, you know, my central thesis is that, that what really divides us is class, that income distribution is about as skewed as it's ever been, at least, you know, in the post-war period. And that would be as true of the U.S. as Canada, as Western Europe. It's basically the same issue. Those who have been the most screwed, so to speak, have been what we used to call the middle class, which for the first time in post-war history is now a minority of the population. Like in the U.S., that would be roughly 23.5 to 65.5,000 income, slightly different in the other countries. You know, what you're finding is that not only are they a shrinking percentage of the population, but their economic clout is a shadow of what it once was. You know, in the 1980s, 60% 60% of U.S. consumer spending came from the middle class. Today, that's 40%, which is no more than what the top 5% pack. So it's a disappearing breed. And, well, of just, course, with that has been a lot of discontent, discontent because people have been left behind. Well, just on that point, there's no question that that's part of what's happening. But it is also part of what's happening, what's been happening, people moving from sort of middle-income quintile to upper income quintiles i mean there is uh, and this is this is the work of mark absolutely some have yeah. but yeah. but for every one that has gone up two have fallen and 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 what's changed is 
that, you know, go back a couple of decades ago, being in the middle class was basically a lifetime gig, lifetime membership. Today, in the U.S., one out of every seven fall out of it every five years, and it's not unique to the U.S. It's in all of these places. So what we're seeing is that more and more people are falling out of the middle class, and even those that are staying in it, middle class incomes are growing at a fraction of what they had in the past, and the middle class is a lot older because people of my generation, about 70% of us baby boomers are middle class. Today, Generation X and Z, you know, barely 50%. So a whole new dynamic at play here, and I think that if you drill down to why that has happened, it has everything to do with trade policy. And that is uh, driving uh, some of the uh, 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 renewed attraction to command control economies or a command control economy, more more provision by government in lieu of the free That's exchange. Right. More, more autarkic models of yes. economic growth. Um, you know, I mean, we now have probably the most protectionist president in post-war history, and I think he's moved the dial on a lot of things, no matter what happens November 3rd. I think a growing number of American households, and indeed households in Canada and Western Europe, have come to the realization that while global free trade is a great deal for the top 1%, it's not a great deal for the vast majority of people who would identify themselves as middle-class households. And and so you write in your piece, sort of your concluding thought is, what we need are policies, including in trade uh, and immigration area, that help us carve up the economic pie in a way that sees all workers get their fair share, no matter what their ethnicity. Well, you know, there's a lot of... uh, uh, terms that need definition or at least um, uh, a, a roadmap for how you achieve whatever you define to be, for example, fair share. And so, you know, how should that be sussed out? Well, I mean, I think, you know, a, a good place to start is trade policy. It's it's not an accident that for the first time in two decades, manufacturing employment is growing in the United States. I mean, that has everything to do with the kind of trade policies that the Trump administration, and incidentally, the same trade policies that Bernie Sanders would have implemented had he been allowed to grab the nomination for the Democratic Party. That's a good place to start. I think one real contentious issue is going to be immigration, because certainly in the past, uh, you know, large surges in immigration have been associated with wage stagnation, not for, you know, doctors and lawyers, but certainly for unskilled labor. And in fact, studies have shown that the most adversely affected have been basically unskilled black laborers in the United States. Right. And so and so there again is, the, you know, the challenge between competing constituencies to take a, a, a medium term view when everybody lives very, very much in the short term because they got to pay bills and keep the lights on. It's, it's understandable. But but certainly we don't want to foreclose the opportunity for those immigrants that like the Irish and the Italians at the, at the beginning of the 20th century, Central Europeans and uh, Asian, Southeast Asian immigrants more recently, uh, as well as Mexican immigrants to be in the 21st century, what the Irish and Italians became in America in the 20th century. Right. Right. But if you ever saw Scorsese's gangs of New York, uh, those Italian and Irish immigrants weren't always welcomed with open arms. No, by I know. The Native Report. Right. There was a reason for that. I mean, you could say it was racism, and I'm sure there was an element of that, although in this case they were white Christian people. But there was, there was an economic warfare going on, that, that boatloads and boatloads of, of qualified tailors from 
in Italy and Ireland were displacing domestic tailors or forcing them to accept lower wages. So, you know, I mean, that just didn't play out in the U.S. That played out all over. So we shouldn't pretend that those economic tensions don't exist because by pretending they don't exist, doesn't make them go away. And and so the argument then is we need to, uh, I mean, the argument is really along the lines of the argument that we've been having has sort of been subordinated to other issues, but about rethinking our immigration policy in terms of exactly. the, the priorities yeah. that are being uh, that are being advanced. Right, uh, and you'll find that the biggest advocates are surges in immigration, and not just in the United States, but in Canada and elsewhere, tends to be big business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's a reason why the Koch brothers or the Business Council of National Issues in Canada have been supporters of immigration, because as Andrew Carnegie remarked over 100 years ago, they're a stream of gold. They're a source of cheap labor. And, you know, if we're going to have economic growth, you need an expanding labor force. My point is, if I'm an expendable, why do I care about economic growth? Because I haven't seen a real wage increase since the mid-1970s. So certainly... I'm not getting a very large slice of that GDP pie. He is Jeff Rubin. He's the former chief economist at CIBC World Markets, former senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation, award-winning author. He recently published a bestseller, The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization, which we have been discussing. Jeff Rubin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. And uh, something that persists after November 3rd is what's happening to K 12 education, or what's not happening. What is happening is the uh, school systems being turned into. Uh, totalitarian indoctrination centers, basically. And uh, what is not happening is preparing students to be critical, independent thinkers and developing the skills they need to be successful in life in whatever path they choose. Uh, So uh, it's interesting that a retired teacher who is uh, president of the California Teachers Empowerment Network would uh, write thusly at City Journal, California is reaching the point where true civil disobedience would be fighting back against the progressive groupthink that has invaded our schools. Truly civilly disobedient students would start our campus Republican club and wear MAGA hats to school while the state education establishment is committed, uh, committing schools to a radical progressive agenda. Only half of California students performed a grade level in reading on the most recent state administered test. Just 30 percent of the state's eighth graders scored proficient in reading on the 2019 National Assessment of Educational Progress. Of course, those dismal numbers are repeated throughout the major urban school districts in the country, including uh, in my hometown of Chicago. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the uh, aforereferenced retired teacher, Larry Sand, who's the president of the California Teachers Empowerment Network. Larry, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Well, we uh, talked a little bit about this yesterday with uh, the San Diego Unified School District, the second largest in California, uh, moving to change its grading policies to take into account uh, disparate outcomes for pe- for students categorized by race. So they need to stop worrying about things like uh, turning in your work on time and focus on uh, you know uh, other factors. Um, so this is just more of what's happening to K through twelve education and. 
And one wonders, uh, other than, um, you know, having kids open up their, their start Republican clubs on campus, like you suggest, what um, what can be done, what parents should be doing, particularly in the era of Zoom, where they have uh, more ready access to what's happening uh, in terms of the relationship between teachers and students. Yeah, well, that's one of, one of the blessings uh, of the uh, pandemic that we're going through is that a lot of this is online now and parents can actually sit and watch what their kids are learning. But, of course, this won't be in play forever, and parents need to become much more involved in their kids' education, and they need to quite – very important, they need to talk to the kids every day. What did you learn in school today, Johnny? Well, what did you learn in history? Did you learn anything about America? Did you learn anything about race? And, you know, it's sad that it's come to this. When I went to school in the 1950s, my mother didn't have to worry about this. But now we do, and parents need to do this, and they need to raise hell. They need to go to this principal, the school board, and, and see what they can do to stop it. If you can homeschool, do that. If you can send your kid to a private school that reflects your values, do that. Of course, not all parents can do it. Those are the parents who need to do check-ins with their kid every day. Yeah, it's interesting you, uh, how you talk about your education uh, in a conversation with uh, Anthony Esselin. Uh, yesterday, he mentioned that in 1981 at Princeton, there was no politics in the classroom. The only class in which there was a discussion of uh, contemporary politics at Princeton University was in a class called Contemporary Politics. Um, <laughs> other, otherwise, uh, it was absent. Oh, so Right. So, it was it, you know, Princeton was left then, too. But it was uh, but but Anthony Esselin, who is, you know, a highly educated individual, uh, said, I got a great education at Princeton. It, it seems to me that we have to disabuse some parents of the notion that infusing politics into every topic within every class uh, actually retards their kids intellectual development. I, I, I don't know why what, it doesn't seem that a lot of parents get that. Uh, well, uh, if, if parents don't get it, then things will go along as they have been, which is not good for their for their kids. But I, I do think a lot of parents get it. I don't think you have to be a conservative. I don't think you have to be a Trump voter to get it. Right. I mean, you you can be on the center and even center left and realize that your kid's not supposed to get politically indoctrinated in school. They're not supposed to learn that that you know racism is endemic to American life. You're supposed to learn the ABCs. <laughs> You know, and, and, and the one, two, three is not the BLMs. You, you, this is why you send your kid to school. If you want to send your kid to, to some sort of like a socialist camp after school, fine. That's your business. But on, in public schools, this is supposed to be education about, you know, teaching your kids, teaching kids how to read, write, sort of basic science, science uh, premises. And... Um, and and that's it. You're not supposed to get politically indoctrinated. More parents, as I said, need to get uh, hit to this. Well, we have uh, talked about the parents. We've talked about the students. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about the teachers and administrators, uh, the other stakeholders uh, in the system, those in uh, the positions of authority, frankly. More with Larry Sand, retired teacher, president of the California Teachers Empowerment Network. Right after The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Larry Sand. He is a retired teacher. He's the president of the California Teachers Empowerment Network. We're talking about uh, the uh, uh, political indoctrination that's going on in California's K-12 through school systems. But, of course, it's not limited to California. It's, it's occurring everywhere, particularly along racial lines, as we discussed on last uh, night's program with James Lindsay from New Discourses. And uh, Larry, uh, as I said uh, right before the break, we talked a little bit about uh, what's happening to students, a little bit about what parents should be seeing and could be doing. What about the teachers and the administrators? They they think uh, that uh, this sort of uh, hyper-politicized classroom environment is good for the kids, is, is their purpose as a teacher or administrator? Well, obviously some do, and, and and these are the teachers that push it. But of course, not all teachers are guilty of this, and that's why I, you know, I keep I keep harping on the uh, on the point that that parents need to become involved and find out what the kids are doing. You know, especially like in middle school, where a kid might have six different teachers, you need to go through each class, and you know, what did you learn? Did your teacher say this? You know. Um, yeah, and, and, and unfortunately, due to the tenor of the times, especially in, in, in big cities, especially in, in progressive states like California, teachers who go against the tide can be uh, shunned, um, to say the least, and uh, the, the, the teachers need to step up and, 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 and out other teachers, frankly, because they're affecting young children. Is there is there a possibility of a revolt from, you know, inside the house, so to speak, uh, particularly in the era of Janice and, and actually Rebecca Fredericks uh, before Janice, uh, where you, you you decouple from the union, you form your own cadre of teachers who actually believe in instill a, instilling a love of learning uh, in children rather than a love of the Democrat Party? I mean, is that possible? Well, it's yes, it's possible, but it's very slow. I mean, people who who predicted that uh, teachers would flock from the union after Janice were uh, were wrong, and and a lot of us knew it. Mm-hmm. It's a slow drip. It's not going to happen overnight, um, and, and and not enough to make a difference in the near term. The unions still have a lot of power. They have a lot of money. They're in bed with the Black Lives Matter people, with the LGBT. You know, go on and on. Right. Uh, out the whole alphabet is, soup of uh, affiliations, right. yes. Yeah, so I, the, the, the most immediate, um, you know, I just, once again, you have to go back to parents. They're in charge of their kids, and, 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 and unfortunately, teachers, there may be an individual school where enough teachers revolt and things get changed, but overall, no, I don't think that's going to happen, not in the near term. Well, parent, I mean, excuse me, uh, teachers are adults, too, and uh, in local parentis, they have dominion over the kids for the school day, at least in traditional times. So, so I mean, you know, what is the message to teachers in terms of their their accountability for what happens in the classroom, what happens to the children under their charge? Well, in California, it doesn't really matter because you can't fire teachers after they get tenure, which is two years. Now, in other states, it's different. I mean, we don't have time here to go through each state. Yeah. I'm just looking at through the, the California lens. Two years, you basically have a job for life. Basically, two teachers every year get fired for performance in California out of 300,000 teachers. So teachers don't have to worry about that. They can do pretty much what they want. Well, right. And but so, so to my point, then, it's a question of getting teachers who have a particular philosophy on education into the ranks of teachers who are not currently in the ranks. Currently, it seems like it's a bunch of left-wing apparatchiks, and so they can do what they want. But if it was people who believed in instilling a love of learning and in terms of educating, in terms of teaching kids to be lifelong learners, then they could do what they want, too, without consequence. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's certainly there. I'm not. I'm certainly not to, uh, trying to tar all teachers. No. With right. Be brushed. But, right. Uh, you know. And, and and those teachers go to school, do a good job. The kids learn. The the kids like the teachers. The parents like the teachers. But you you still have way too many on the left. And then when you have, um, the you know the education to end all hate here from coming from the state superintendent, and you have bills to mandate ethnic learning and ethnic studies to graduate um, high school, you're you're asking for trouble, and and it's going to happen. So it's uh, it's a systemic problem, and it's an individual teacher problem, and until uh, Parents start raising hell. Nothing's going to change. Yeah, uh, Wokefornia, as you uh, terminate in your piece in the City Journal. And and it's interesting, the uh, ethnic studies uh, curriculum that was uh, vetoed for now by California Governor Newsom. Uh, Interesting what the uh, sponsor of that legislation said in promising to bring it back. He um, he and and, uh, those that were affiliated with him, including uh, some members of the California Teachers Association, not surprisingly, they, uh, w- w- uh, one of the individuals said, white people in this society can still, with the stroke of a pen, say to children of color in this state that your history doesn't matter and that the only way your history will be told is if we get to sanitize it, scrutinize it, and approve it before it gets to you. Uh-huh. So uh, one of the things that some teachers, or some parents, I should say, who also don't like Trump, may come to find out, and maybe this is part of the uh, argument to them, is that when Donald Trump goes away, whether it's uh, on November 3rd, or whether it's four years from now, they're just going to find new boogeymen. They're, they're just going to find new boogeymen to do what they want to do. This never ends because this is so much sure. bigger than Donald Trump. And I, I think a lot of people are so in the moment that get rid of Trump and everything will be better. This is not uh, this is not going to stop. No, you're, you're absolutely right. No, this, this is a whole societal change thing. This is, you know, tr- Trump is sort of a figurehead, but there's so much else to I mean, you just look at the Supreme Court. Uh, look what just happened. Amy Coney Barrett is now in the court, and and the progressives are flipping out. And as you know, but Biden may or may not try to stack the court. And yeah, no, it, it goes way beyond Trump. Trump, tell, Trump is just one piece of the puzzle. Uh, tell us what the, the California Teachers Empowerment Network does. Maybe it should be modeled in other states. Uh, well, very simply, we just try to get information to teachers about issues in their profession, union issues, syllab- you know, curricular issues, and you know, un, you know, from a uh, how can I say liberal standpoint. In other words, we don't take sides. I, in my personal life, I'm very opinionated, but as president and leader of the uh, California Teachers Empowerment Network, we just try to get fair and balanced information to teachers. And um, about union issues, as I said, and, and, and anything else having to do with education, because the unions in the school districts do not give them uh, fair and balanced information. He is Larry Sand, retired teacher, president of the California Teachers Empowerment Network, which he was just describing. Larry, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it.
Welcome back to the show. As we close out today, just picking up on our conversation with Larry Sand, that retired teacher out of California, and uh, folding in our conversation with um, James Lindsay from New Discourses yesterday about critical race theory, because that's what that's what Larry Sand was really talking about with respect to this ethnic studies curriculum and uh, everything being force-fed through the prism of race. Uh, our friend James Lindsay, we didn't get to this with him yesterday, but I wanted to, and I will tweet these out at Dan Prop because they're very useful flashcards. Critical race theory for dummies flashcards that uh, James Lindsay has uh, authored for us. You know, you want to start with definitions, right? Defining diversity. Diversity equals, for the critical race theory activists, so you understand what they mean when they use these words, Diversity means we don't want diversity of opinion. We only want to hire and admit people who have different racial, ethnic, gender backgrounds, but all have the same opinion and ideology. Equity. Equity means mandatory racial quotas in hiring and school admissions and equal outcomes through policy, for example, giving all high school students an A grade during remote learning in Seattle or eliminating objective standard tests for college or eliminating blind music auditions for orchestras and the like. Inclusion. Inclusion means to the critical race theory activists, only certain ideas are allowed or promoted by this organization. Anti-racism means perpetual racism and racial discrimination is acceptable, desirable, even required if directed at the right groups, Asians, Hispanics, Jews, Caucasians, to achieve equity as a response to historical injustices like slavery or redlining. Evidence. Evidence means personal stories or anecdotes of perceived oppression must be taken over objective facts and statistics unless it goes against CRT ideology or CRT-based policies. Isn't this helpful? Uh, All three useful analogies so you can conceptualize critical race theory. Again, uh, critical race theory flashcards for dummies from James Lindsay, who, by the way, I want to emphasize, considers himself a man of the left. Hmm. The useful analogies. Critical race theory is to race what communism is to class. Anti-racism is to racism what preemptive war is to war. Whiteness is to critical race theory what original sin is to Christianity. I particularly like that one because, of course, critical race theory and identitarian politics more generally is a religion. As I mentioned uh, earlier in the program when uh, speaking to uh, Michael Warren Davis, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And that would include something as ridiculous as critical race theory. Uh, and uh, lastly, just this is one. There's a dozen flashcards that you want to look through, and that's why I'll tweet it out. A simple comparison of types of racism and dehumanization. Normal racism. Dehumanize or attack an ethnic group or human being under the perception they're inferior. Anti-Semitism. Dehumanize or attack Jewish people or individuals under the perception they have too much privilege, power, or wealth. Critical race theory, dehumanize or attack white, Asian, Latino, or other white adjacent people, that's a term, or individuals under the perception that they too, uh, that they have too much privilege, power, or wealth. Same idea, just different targets. That's what Shelby Steele says. It's just a different racial order, a different discriminatory racial order, power according to race. That's what you want. And again, as per our discussion with Larry Sand, this battle rages forward regardless of the outcome on November 3rd. It's just a question of the pace at which it does. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.